Today the Candlestick Murder stands as a sort of signpost for a period in Charleston's not-so-distant past when social anxieties and outright bigotries were thrust into plain sight. In a 2008 USC master's thesis titled Offending Decent People, Murder, Masculinity, and the Homosexual Menace in Cold War-Era Charleston, Santi Thompson examines the effect that Cold War tensions had upon Charleston's LGBTQ community during this era. The Candlestick Trial, its references with a homosexual subculture in Charleston and its implied relationship with the homosexual menace, helped to fill some of the historical absence of homosexuality in 1950s Charleston, writes Thompson, currently head of Digital Research Services at University of Houston Libraries. Quote, By emphasizing accepted gender roles, the defense lawyers place sexuality on the list of concerns for those in Charleston looking to maintain the old social order of veiled white supremacy and racial segregation. Furthermore, the close coverage of the trial by local and regional newspapers helped to spread the consequences of sexual nonconformity to a wider audience, even if these papers did not blatantly engage in a discussion on homosexuality. The trial served as just one in a series of reminders on what the white power structure of Charleston and other southern cities would tolerate. It was during this time that fears of communities being infiltrated by homosexuals and communists began to conflate. The same year that Dobbins was killed saw the creation of the Committee to Investigate Communist Activities in South Carolina. Local, state, and federal officials were hungry to uncover subversives. Just as bar owner Billy Camden was subject to an impromptu inquisition from Navy personnel demanding he point out service members who frequented his club, other similar investigations were carried out across Charleston following the Candlestick murder. To quote Thompson, while the police focused on the primary concern from the incident, finding the person responsible for Dobbin's death, local military investigations sought to clarify individual relationships between people affiliated with Charleston's various military bases and Dobbin's. These investigations mirrored the military's larger imperative to remove temptations of gender nonconformity and sexual promiscuity from the access of Charleston's cadets, soldiers, and airmen. With the combination of official records documenting homosexual activity in the city, along with the rumors that prompted military investigations, many soldiers, including the types of soldiers on the jury, were familiar with the reputation of homosexual encounters in Charleston. They were also familiar with the military's attempts to condemn homosexuality, both around the country and in Charleston. Describing the direct impact that Mahone's trial and eventual exoneration had on the local LGBTQ community, Harlan Green says, There's a fellow who has subsequently died who actually told me the impact that it had he was probably an adolescent at the time, and he grew up downtown. But maybe this fellow um, was maybe about 13 or 14 at the time, uh, or was an adolescent at the time of the Dobbins murder. And he specifically told me that he, so no supposition required, um, um, you know, that he felt threatened as a gay person, that he felt it was not safe to come out as a gay person in the city of Charleston. 
And I will say, you know, he died prematurely, but he probably died in his 60s. While he was fairly out in later life, it was, you know, he never um, was, you know, completely out as far as I know in his profession and that kind of thing. Billy Camden, who had known Dobbins since he first moved to Charleston, spoke rather bluntly when it came to the jury's final verdict in Mahone's trial. In his mind, Mahone had gotten off scot-free because the young airman told the court that Dobbins propositioned him for sex. It remained Camden's opinion that Mahone wasn't as naive as he let on. Now, this kid had been in the gay bars. He knew what was going on. Yet he robbed and killed Jack, then turned himself in to a strong Catholic lawyer. The boy was protecting his virginity, his counsel argued in court. Well, the boy got off with a slap on the wrist and a trip out of town. Dobbin's mother didn't pursue it because she was embarrassed and hurt. She just wanted it swept under the rug and forgotten about. But you know, back then the gay community didn't get justice. We didn't expect it. Then, gay people were often robbed and too embarrassed to report it. If they did report it, the person who was robbed was victimized again by the system. Camden was right about Dobbin's mother. Alma Hendricks had remained out of the public eye following the death of her son. But although she never raised any sort of campaign to find justice for Dobbins, Hendricks did make one final effort to preserve his memory. On January 5, 1959, Hendricks filed an official application for a military headstone for her son's grave in Spartanburg. Despite being at the center of a media circus and having every detail of his life publicly scrutinized, Dobbins' military service was scarcely mentioned. His two tours of duty in the Air Force during the Korean War was a footnote in his own obituary, overshadowed by comments about his flair for decorating and interest in art. Coverage of the trial failed to provide any real mention of Dobbins' status as a military veteran. Even recent, more sympathetic accounts of the Candlestick murder have overlooked Dobbins' time in the Air Force. This is all largely attributable to the press's depiction of Dobbins following his death and the attack that Mahone's attorneys perpetrated on his character. As Dobbins was presented to the world, he was a sexual deviant, a man of abnormal desires, and he damn sure couldn't be a soldier. As Nancy L. Buck, Pembroke Center archivist at Brown University, Mary Murphy curates women's and gender non-binary histories. While completing a master's program at the Savannah College of Art and Design, Murphy researched significant sites related to Charleston's LGBTQ history, 
going on to map out a walking tour of these important destinations. Chief among the stops on the tour are Dobbin's home at 14 Queen Street and the former site of Club 49. As I wrote about in my thesis research and for the work that I did around the walking tour, um, it is an incredible disservice to communities to whitewash their history um, in terms of race, in terms of gender and sexuality, in terms of class. Um, cities, I believe, are the strongest when they come to terms with the diverse histories that have happened in their locales. Uh, good, bad, and the ugly. Uh, the Candlestick murder was obviously a scene of a, of a crime, arguably a hate crime. Um, but it these are fascinating stories. Um, the city's reaction to these spaces and sites have a significance in terms of the politics of a city, the culture of a the city. These sites can teach a lesson and they can inform people about the significance of the past. They're, they're really living laboratories, um, just like the Stonewall Inn. Um, the sites in Charleston, like Club 49, was so significant. It's, it's really no different. This was a home base for gay men, predominantly I think it was gay men and mixed couples, um, that everyone knew about at the time. Uh, it was risky to go there, but also seen as a safe space. And so as modern people go and visit these spaces today, or even to walk by and see where it where it stood, because it's now a parking lot, people come to those sites and can read about that history and then think about where the gay community in Charleston is today. And so they can ask themselves, well, where are we? How are we doing? Um, what about nationally? Are people afraid to visit gay bars today again, like they were then? Or have we made progress? And so these historic sites um, not only document really important history that should not be forgotten, but they can also be used as a tool to think about where we have come. Growing up in Charleston, Leonard Matlovich was a 14-year-old military brat at the time of Dobbin's death. A closeted student at Bishop England High School, Matlovich dated girls but was unable to escape being called a faggot by his classmates. In James Sears' book, Rebels, Ruby Fruit, and Rhinestones, Queering Space in the Stonewall South, Matlovich recalls his feelings on the night the verdict was delivered in the candlestick murder trial. Lying in bed on that cold night, Matlovich whispered to himself, My God, am I one of those terrible creatures? Matlovich later served three tours of duty in Vietnam, earning a bronze star and a purple heart. Eventually assigned to teach enlistees about racial tolerance, Matlovich found it funny that someone from the Deep South would assume such a duty. His lover, Clig Anker, recalled, Being as polite and well-mannered as he was, I could understand why Leonard felt he could champion other civil rights and teach about racial prejudices yet be unable to champion his own. Certain things are just not done, 
and is a huge break from tradition and the trappings of Southern society to come out of the closet and publicly declare oneself as being gay. In the military, particularly the Air Force, any hint or innuendo was sufficient to clobber a career. Leonard was constantly on his guard, but his Southern upbringing and his ability to conceal himself, he said, helped. Then, on March 6, 1975, Sergeant Matlovich placed a letter on the desk of his commanding officer. He was no longer a frightened teenager, afraid of what he was. The letter read, After some years of uncertainty, I have arrived at the conclusion that my sexual preferences are homosexual as opposed to heterosexual. I have also concluded that my sexual preferences will in no way interfere with my Air Force duties. Later that year, Malevich appeared on the cover of Time magazine, dressed in full uniform beside the headline, I am a homosexual. After being discharged from the Air Force, Malevich went on to become a proud advocate for gay rights and the right to serve openly in the military. In 1988, Malevich died of AIDS at the age of 44. His tombstone carries the message, When I was in the military, they gave me a medal for killing two men and a discharge for loving one. You know, it just challenges what you think you know, right? So one of the things that I learned from studying the Candlestick Murder and Club 49 was the deep overlap between the Navy, the military, and the queer community in Charleston in the 1950s, right? So clearly there were people serving closeted who were also hanging out at Club 49, right? So it just tears down what you think you know. It challenges the public to think more critically about the, the history they're consuming or the sites that they're seeing. Um, and of course, Char- Charleston has, is beginning to take this on um, far more critically around the history of slavery in Charleston and around race. Um, but I think it's important to also challenge the city to do the same around um, gay liberation. Uh, Charleston and Savannah, where I was, are, I mean, it was sort of the unspoken known. Like, those two cities have always been gentlemen cities, right? There's always been very high gay populations in both of those cities. And so why does no one talk about this or acknowledge the deep legacy and history of that in their communities? Earlier this year, Harlan Green secured funding to launch a project titled LGBTQ Life in the Low Country. Together with historian Kara DeLay, he is working to collect oral histories and other records, which he hopes will help elevate the LGBTQ community in South Carolina, in Charleston, and beyond. The interesting thing is, is you know, it's one minority in Charleston that's never been allowed in the exclusive club of history, and it's always been very interesting to me to see. You, it, it always, you know, you know, it's Orwell, he who controls the past controls the future and vice versa. It's so interesting that as these different ethnic groups or small groups start getting their historical markers up in the city, they also start gaining political power. You know, it used to be just historical markers to straight white men. We started seeing historical markers to women, to African Americans. They're now sharing in the power. So I think we've kind of reached this kind of cusp maybe with LGBTQ. Um, stuff. It's so interesting how the future and the past in Charleston are linked. You know, once you prove that you have been here, that you've got a gay history, people take you seriously. So, you know, so while there's other certainly, you know, 
social problems. You know, murder, murder of a trans woman this past Saturday in Charleston. You know, I still think, you know, rediscovering the history is really important, if, if no, for no other reason, just not to repeat it. This concludes part three of a three-part series for the Charleston City Paper titled A Slow Burn, How the Candlestick Murder of 1958 Struck Fear in Charleston's Gay Community. This episode was written, edited, and scored by myself, Dustin Waters, with script supervision by Sam Spence. The part of Billy Camden was read by Greg Garrett. The part of Clig Anchor was read by Tyler Bennett. Special thanks to Mary Murphy and Harlan Green for appearing in this series, and Santi Thompson for assisting in research. Special thanks to Jeff Lown and Paul Bowers for contributing to the series. Please pick up a copy of the City Paper's Pride issue, available September 11th, and visit www.charlestoncitypaper.com for more. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider contributing to the College of Charleston's LGBTQ Life in the Low Country project. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>